Let's turn to Romans chapter 16 tonight. This is our final study in Romans. There is, this is one of those books that you could uh, spend years in. It's been done, by the way. And we finished chapter 16 tonight. Thought we'd do it last week, but you've heard that before. It's been amazing. We covered verses 1 through 16 last week. It's amazing that Paul had never visited Rome, and yet he knew so many people that were there by name. You look at the first 16 verses and all those that he mentions by name, and he had never, ever visited that city. That in and of itself is pretty noteworthy. It just shows us that Paul was a very connected individual. In fact, we sort of started off our study last week noting that if you have this idea in your mind that Paul the Apostle was some do-it-yourself loner kind of apostle who just went off, forget everybody else, don't need anybody else, it's just me and God, you've got him pegged wrong. He always had a team of people. There was an accountability with this man. He shared the burden among so many. And he believed in relationships and being well-connected. And just how he speaks about these with such a loving, intimate, encouraging, thankful heart brings insight into the kind of man that Paul the Apostle was. And so we talked about that last week, kind of read through the names. We should probably mention that, as true as that is, think just for a moment of the opposite of that truth. Think of the person, unlike Paul, who is not well-connected and who isolates himself from relationships. Know anybody like that? We've mentioned this before, but those are dangerous individuals. Proverbs 18.1 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. He seeks his own desire. That's why he doesn't want to be connected, because when you're connected with people in a close relationship of some kind, a real friendship, something that is authentic, they call you on the carpet. They get in your face. They'll say, hey, this isn't right. Or they'll rub with your personality and one of you's got to change. Iron sharpens iron. And so people that won't allow that only prove that they want their own agenda. That's why they're isolated. They don't want to change. They want what they want and selfishness will breed that kind of isolation. That was not Paul. He was connected. He was accountable. We need fellowship. For those reasons, without true fellowship, we become easy prey for the enemy. He can pick us off. When you're away from the group, you can be picked off. You become vulnerable to adopting worldly values. And so, it's just a good object lesson in looking at Paul in light of these names here. We mentioned last week that there are 26 names that are mentioned. 24 directly by name. Their names are given. Sometimes a little bit about them is given. We noted that out of the 26 names listed, there's a healthy mix. It's not all Jew. It's not all Gentile. It's not all male. There's Jew. There's Gentile. There's men. There's women. 
There's royalty involved, and there are slaves involved. And we know that because some of the names were obvious ancient names, common names for slaves. While other names, 13 of the names in this roster, appear in the literature, the documents, of the royal household of the Caesars. So we know that some of these worked or were family members connected with Caesar's household. And you will remember that when Paul writes to the Philippians, he talks about those in Caesar's household greet you. Paul was a prisoner, and as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, not of the Roman government, that's how he saw himself, he was free to preach the gospel to anyone. And he did until they killed him. And so you can imagine Paul being guarded by sets of soldiers over four watches per 24-hour period. Some of them were chained to Paul. Others just stood around. Paul took advantage of the situation. He had literally a captive audience. They were chained to him. They were a captive audience. And so he figured, great. These guys can't get away. It's not like the guy in the street that you can say, excuse me, do you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? They're out of there. These guys were chained to him, so he thought, I'm going to go for it. And he led some of them to Christ. So those of Caesar's household greet you, and some of these bear the names of Caesar's household. Now we get to verse 17, and it's sort of a change here in, in the tone of this chapter, this section, I would say. Because up to this point, we've had personal greetings filled with love, filled with encouragement, filled with thanksgiving and commendation to these people for the great work that they have done and how they have been involved in his life. Now, from personal greetings, Paul has a section that is a warning section. Sort of seems out of place to some because the next few verses are full of denunciation they're denunciatory. Some of them are almost imprecatory. This warning against evil and false prophets within the church. Verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So love, encouragement, greet this person. This person has been a great help. They worked hard in the Lord. And now this denunciation. It seems out of place. Love, 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 denunciation, warning. Actually, if you think about it, it fits perfectly. Because Paul so loved them that he wanted to keep them pure. He wanted to keep them on target and part of true love is warning, is it not? Those that you love, you warn against evil. I got a letter this week from a friend who 
helped host us while we were in India, and he said that he was traveling by bus in India, which in and of itself is an act of immense faith. Not only was he riding the bus in India, but the buses in India, forget the seats. There's so many people. You stand, you hang out the door, and you sit on the roof. Well, he was on the roof, and he was standing up, and he didn't see a power line as the bus was going, and somebody who knew him and loved him yanked him down just in time. Now, did it feel good to have somebody grab you and yank you down? That's not loving. Oh, it was very loving, lest your head get lopped off by the wire. And so if you see danger coming to those you love, you warn them strongly. Any parent knows this to be true. And just think about what Paul has written so far in the book of Romans. Remember the theme? The theme of Romans is what, if you remember? The righteousness of God that's expressed and revealed in the gospel of Christ. The righteousness of God that comes as seen through the gospel of Christ. And he belabors the point in the first few chapters that we are under the wrath of God. That man is a sinner by nature, by birth, and doomed to destruction. If we try to get to heaven by good works, by righteousness, it's worse. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's the first section of Romans, right? The wrath of God. The second section of Romans, remember what it was? The grace of God. But a righteousness from heaven is revealed. And it's the righteousness that comes by our believing and trusting in the finished work of Christ. We're doomed naturally, but we have faith in Jesus Christ who saves us. The third section is the plan of God for the Jewish nation and how the Gentile and the Jew fit into the plan of God. And the fourth section is the will of God, the will of God personally, the will of God in society, the will of God in the body, etc., etc. There would be a lot of people in reading this Magna Carta of Christian truth who would have real problems with some of those things. Today, people have problems. Tell the average person on the street, let me tell you something. If you try to get to heaven by being good, you'll never make it. You are under the righteous wrath of God. See how well that goes over. But if you turn to Jesus Christ and place your faith in him, God will give you freely his righteousness and you'll be his. See how well that goes over. So there still are people that have problems outside the church, and unfortunately, I might say, inside the church, who don't like these teachings of Romans. Paul knows it, and so at the end, as sort of tying on the bow and expressing his great love for them, in love, he warns them about such. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in what? The truth. You cannot have love without truth. And so the idea that, oh, well, Christian love is, it doesn't matter what you believe, you just put your arm around everybody and sing, we are the world, is bogus. Real love in the church is linked to real truth. Biblical truth. And Paul stated the truth, and Paul loves them and gives them greetings, and then he says, now watch out. And he warns them. So love is ready to forgive all 
Love is ready to forgive all evil, but love would never condone evil, especially in the church. Back in Acts chapter 20, before uh, Paul was leaving Ephesus and he called the elders of the church together, you remember how he gathered them out there on the beach? And he said that he was going, going to Jerusalem, etc. And the Holy Spirit showed him that chains and imprisonment await me. None of these things move me, said Paul. Neither do I count my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus. And toward the end of that monologue, Paul warns them. He loves them, he embraces them, but then he warns them. And he says, therefore, take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For this I know, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in to devour the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things, that they might draw away the disciples unto themselves. Therefore watch, said Paul, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you day and night. He warned them. People are going to come in to rip you off. And a good shepherd, a good pastor, a good leader, will always seek to warn people. A good shepherd will have a staff to guide the sheep and a club to beat the wolves. Isn't that what David said? Psalm 23, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. We know what a staff is. A staff was a long, crooked stick. The shepherd always lovingly would guide the sheep. But hanging from the belt of the shepherd was a rod. A rod was a club. Typically in the Middle East, the club had little uh, nails protruding from it. It was an attention getter. It was never for the sheep, because a good shepherd never beats the sheep. Feeds the sheep, tends the sheep, leads the sheep. But a good shepherd has a club. And when the sheep see the club, ooh, thy rod and thy staff comfort me. It's a comfort to know that I have a good shepherd, that if a wolf comes in to attack the flock, the shepherd won't say, well, whatever you're into, we're all brothers here. Come on in, little wolf. But we'll take out the club and give it a good smack in Jesus' name. <laughs> One of the stories I love, and it, it almost sounds insignificant, but if you just pause and think about it, it shows you the character of Jesus. It's the time when Jesus approaches the disciples. The disciples have been having a conversation with the Pharisees. And Jesus walks up and he looks, turns to the Pharisees and he says, what are you talking to them about? I love that. He knew, but he calls them on the carpet for it. Hey, what are you doing, man? You're talking to my disciples. What are you discussing? He wanted to know. He wanted to bring it out in the open because he loved them. Martin Luther wrote these very poignant words. Even if I preach correctly and shepherd the flock with sound doctrine, I neglect my duty if I do not warn the sheep against the wolves. For what kind of builder would I be if I were to pile up masonry and then stand by while another tears it down? The wolf does not object to our leading the sheep to good pastures. The sheep that have been fattened are more eagerly sought by him. 
while he cannot tolerate, what he cannot tolerate is that the watchdogs stand guard ready to give him battle. And then he also said, a preacher must be both a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish, defend, and teach, but he must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and to fight. Paul was a good shepherd. Jesus was a good shepherd. Paul gives them Romans, and then he goes, oh, now before we close, watch out. And he warns them. Many in the church, in the name of, I might add, Christian love, will tolerate anything. And they think it's a virtue. It's how deluded they are. Oh, well, we're all brothers here, man. Doesn't matter what you believe. Just let's all get together. You know, the fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man, neighborhood of Boston. We're, we're all together. Some of you will remember the words that Jesus spoke in the letter he wrote, the postcard, I should say. He wrote to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. Jesus said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and how you cannot bear them that are evil, and how that you have tested those who say they are apostles but are not. You found them liars. Did you notice that Jesus commended the church not for their tolerance. He commended them for their intolerance of evil. Jesus said, right on, good going. You aced it. That was good. You cannot bear them that are evil. What he was referring to, it was common in Ephesus and other churches. There were itinerants that would come through town. They still do. And they hold their campaigns, their big meetings, and take their big offerings. And they claim to be apostles. I have apostolic authority from heaven. Or they claim to be prophets. And there were two groups that came to Ephesus and circled the church route. Some that said they were apostles, some that said they were prophets. Jesus said, you know what I like about you guys is you test those kind of people and you say wrong or right. There was a document circulating in the early church. It is not a part of scripture. That is, it's not been considered canonical as equal to have authority as the scriptures. But it was called the teaching of the twelve, or simply the teaching, called in Greek didache, the didache. It was a manual given to church leadership on how to spot a false apostle or prophet. They called them in those days, the translation, at least in English, is missioner. A missioner, someone on a mission, an itinerant who would come through town. I'm a prophet of God. I'm an apostle. And he said, if a missioner comes, receive him, just like you'd receive the Lord. Let him stay with you even one day. But if he tries to stay in your house two days or three days, he is not from the Lord. Kick him out. Because the idea is they're being idle in the name of the Lord. If a missioner comes, says the Didache, and says in a trance, you know, I got a vision from God. Here, God's speaking to me. And they say something like, give me some money. Take up an offering. The Didache said they are a false prophet. Now, I have a copy of this manuscript at home, and I, I read it every now and then. I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated that much of the modern church has never heard of it. And boy, I'd like to resurrect it. In fact, I should probably put it in a modern translation and just print it and circulate it. I love to see those very things put into action today. 
where somebody comes in the name of the Lord and they say, thus says the Lord, give me a big offering, kick them out. They're a false prophet. They had discernment. And Jesus commended that church for it. Of course, it is not, what I'm saying is not politically correct. It's not even correct in a lot of churches to say what I'm saying. But think back to the New Testament. The church at Corinth, were they a good church? You've read Corinthians. Was it a good church? Oh, no. They had more problems than any other church represented in the body of letters Paul writes to. But they were tolerant of immorality. And Paul rebuked them for their being tolerant of immorality. The church at Galatia, remember the story, the letter to the Galatians? They were tolerant of what? Legalism. The Judaizers had come in and persuaded people, you know, put restraints, law, locked them into a legal system. And Paul rebuked them for their tolerance of this. Jesus commends the intolerance of the church against evil. Paul rebukes two churches for their being tolerant of evil on two different fronts. So now here he warns them. Verse 17. Now I urge you, strong word, beseech, urge. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching, the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Anytime there is a new work of God, and it makes sense, does it not? There's going to be a counter move of the devil. If God is moving, he, Satan wants to get in there. It's like when you turn on a light on a front porch. It tracks the bugs. So a great work of God gets done in a community. People are coming. People are getting saved. False prophets go, ooh, want to go over there. Check it out. The light's on. Let's see if anybody's home. And if there's a good shepherd or a good set of pastors, they should be home and watching. It says, avoid them. Literally, shun communion with them. Shun communion with them. Now, I think there, there's phases to this. If we take the body of New Testament teaching, certainly the church was told to avoid them because Paul will go on to say, I want you simple concerning evil, smart concerning good, understanding what is good, but very simple, in a sense naive of evil stuff. Don't even get into it. But Church leadership was told by Paul to rebuke those who are unruly. Reprove them. Now I say that there are phases to this because Jesus said if somebody comes and is offensive or sins against his brother, you are to personally go to him and confront him, right? And say, hey, this is wrong. I, I, I've heard you. I've listened to you. I've watched you. Your life is really in error. And if they receive you, great. You've gained your brother. There's a repentance, there's a restoration, both into fellowship with that person and with the church. If he doesn't receive you, well, I don't have to listen to you. Who are you to judge me? Then Jesus said, go get another brother with you. Two or three, you have witnesses. You can say, listen, I told this person, this is wrong, this, it's obvious error, the Bible says this, it's, it's flagrant sin. And you have witnesses the second time. He says, if they don't listen to the witnesses, tell it to the church. If they don't listen to the church, it says, treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. Avoid them, essentially. You avoid them. You don't even have, you shun them. Because they're claiming something in the name of the Lord. It is against Scripture. There has been an accountability. There has been a forfeiting of any kind of reproving process. 
And so if the person wants to act that hardened and act like a heathen, treat him like one. That's what Jesus Christ, the Lord of love, told us to do. And so Paul says in that process, shun communion or avoid those who cause division and offenses. There was a, a few different groups, and I'll just sort of highlight a few things. The people that caused divisions, they occurred in the early church. Here's a few groups. Number one, there were the Gnostics. And if you've been with us before in previous studies, you know what they are. Gnosis in Greek it means to know. They, they claim to have a superior knowledge. They divided people up in the church into two groups. Themselves, they were spiritual. And people who were not them, others, unspiritual. The Gnostics groups, they had the pneumaticoi, spiritual ones, and then what they called the psuchikoi, the soulish ones, those who live by their senses only. We have a superior knowledge. We know more than you were in tune with God like nobody else is. And if you follow these steps that we can lead you through by a secret initiation, we can get you on our plane. And so they divided the church. Paul says, watch out for them. They were a problem. They plagued the early church for years. Another group was known as Judaizers. It sounds like a strange name, Judaizers. Uh, these were people uh, in the church. They said they knew God. They claimed to have a relationship with God, believe in Jesus Christ, except they said the only way to get saved and to maintain a walk with God is you have to keep the laws of Moses. So they would come into a church and say, well, the really holy ones will go back to the Old Testament and keep all the Jewish roots, all the sacrifices, the Sabbath, the dietary laws. And they were dividing the church. In Acts 15, there's a rebuke against that particular group. The entire book of Galatians is a rebuke against that group as well. Then there was a problem at the love feasts. Corinthians mentions this. Corinthians 10 and 11. They would get together at the love feast. That is a sort of a sanctified potluck. Best way I can describe it. If you're a Baptist, a covered dish. <laughs> Supper. You bring your dish in and uh, you share it as a potluck. And then you have the Lord's Supper. You take communion. But they would have this love feast and little cliques would develop. One little group would hang out with its own kind and the other group would hang out with their own kind. They'd never really integrate. The rich would get there early and they would try to uh, kind of one-up the poor. Instead of waiting so that everybody could get the food, they would eat it all and become very gluttonous. And so Paul has to rebuke them in the book of Corinthians as well, who's dividing the church. Another example of division is a guy in 3 John by the name of Diotrephes. John said Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence. He wants to be number one. He is the top dog in every conversation. And he says he won't receive us. He wouldn't even receive John the Apostle. He won't receive people into the church. But he tries to, if you don't agree with him, just kicks everybody out, gets them away. And he was being divisive because he loved to have the preeminence. Division is serious. It's a serious thing to God. I can prove it. There's a list in Proverbs of seven things God hates. And I've always 
thought that that's an important list we, we ought to be familiar with. Anytime God says, I hate that, we ought to take note of what that is so that we don't do that. On the list, one who sows discord among the brethren. You know, gossipers, people who divide, people who try to drive a wedge in. God hates that. That's division. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, I'm writing, lest there be any divisions, schismata, tears, is the Greek word in the body of Christ. No divisions. What do you do with a divisive man? Well, here it says, shun them or avoid them. In Titus chapter 3, Paul says, reject them. Titus 3 says, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning. You say, man, that's harsh. Where's the love? I say that's filled with love. Paul loves the church enough to want to keep them pure. I mean, you're out in the street. There's a group of children. And there's a dog running at that group of children with froth dripping down its chin. It's growling and running at the kids. You know this dog obviously has problems. It's a little mental. It's got rabies, no doubt. I'm going to stop that dog. If I have to shoot that dog, I'm going to shoot that dog. (gasps) That's not loving. We have to protect the animal's rights. Oh, really? What about that group of kids that dog's going to, oh, well, I'm sorry, but this is a dog. I'm sorry about the dog, if I have to do that, to protect the kids because I love them. Let's place love in the right place. And so Paul, full of love to protect the church, utters these, these things from time to time. Sometimes division is necessary, of course. Dividing between truth and error So he says, in one hand, he says, watch out for those who are divisive and basically make a division. It's interesting, isn't it? You have to divide yourself from a divisive person. What's the whole issue here? That is, if they're divisive, drawing people away from the truth of the Scripture, that's where you make the dividing line. If they're, by their doctrine, by their action, taking a person away from a simple relationship with Jesus Christ by legalism, or by being preeminent, or by the Gnostic kind of thinking, that's when you make a division. Like it says here, Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. So in that case, it's better to have a holy discord than a profane concord. That's discernment. Discernment. There was a guy around here a few years ago who... Um, because he didn't get supported financially for his cause and uh, was rejected by virtually every church leader on staff and even many home fellowships, decided just to sort of go nuts, go on a rampage, write literature and behind people's back, try to divide them and pull people away, all because he served himself and his own interests. And notice verse 18, for those who are such, do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. That's a a description of being selfish. You're serving your own appetites. You're in it for yourself. They serve their own belly. And by smooth words, notice, 
and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. How do they work? By being very eloquent, buttering you up, fattening you up for the kill, you might say. Smooth words, flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Proverbs 29, whoever flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Now, flattery is different from real encouragement. You know, there's, sometimes, there's this genuine love and appreciation and encouragement seeking to build somebody up. Flattery is different. Flattery is where you pour on the compliments so that you can get something. You want to manipulate. It's not about building the other person up. It's about getting something from the other person. The word flatter in English comes from a French word that literally means to stroke with the flat of the hand. It's like to go up to an animal and stroke it, you know. It's, it's where we get the idea of, you know, uh, you get your strokes from somebody saying nice things about you. Flattery, to stroke. Jude 16, it says, these are grumblers. Now listen to it. Here's some sins of the mouth. He puts them all together. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their lusts, serving their own belly, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. What an interesting combination. Grumbling, complaining, lust, flattery. In other words, behind the scenes, they're grumbling, they're complaining, they don't like until they see you. Oh, hi. You're awesome. But they're hypocrites, and they're playing the hypocrite. It's all to get something. Flattering people to gain advantage. Thomas Brooks once wrote, Whilst an ass is stroked under the belly, you may lay on his back whatever burden you please. Nice little donkey, nice little donkey. It'll stay there for you. People who are insecure will fall for it. Notice what it says. They deceive the hearts of the simple. They'll be drawn in. That's why there's a warning. In 2 Chronicles 18, let me tell you the story. You'll be familiar with it as I, as I get into it. King Ahab is in the north. He's the king of the ten northern tribes of Israel. King Jehoshaphat is down south in Judah. King Ahab wants to fight against the town over on the other side of the Jordan River called Ramoth-Gilead. So he calls, makes a phone call down to uh, Jehoshaphat. This is kind of a free rendition, as you can say. Gets on the phone to Jehoshaphat. Hey, Jehoshaphat, I want to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Would you come and help me? Yeah, man, I'm on your side. Where our people are as one, our hearts are as one. So they get together. And before the battle, Jehoshaphat has enough sense. And he says, you know, we should inquire of the Lord first. Smart. Wise. Are there any prophets around that we can inquire? Have we prayed about this? So Ahab goes, yeah, you're right. And he brings 400 prophets in. And he asks them this question. Should we go up to Ramoth-Gilead? And will the Lord give us victory? Or should we refrain? And the prophets pour it on. Go up at once, King Ahab, for God will deliver Ramoth-Gilead into your hands. Jehoshaphat knows these guys are just paid hirelings. They're not really in it for truth. They're just saying whatever pleases them. So he goes, oh, wait a minute. Don't you have any real prophets around here? You know, prophets of the Lord. 
And King Ahab says, well, there is one guy who is a true prophet of God. But he said, but I hate him. <laughs> because he never prophesies anything good about me, but he always says bad stuff about me. His name is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And so they call him in, and sure enough, he tells, tells them, I see in a vision that all of the sheep of Israel are scattered. They don't have a shepherd, no true leader. And he says, see, I told you, I hate this guy. He always prophesies evil against me. He was telling them the truth. He was prophesying the, the result. But the king didn't want to hear it. He wanted to hear flattery. Just speak positive confession to me. You don't have to tell me the truth. It's negative. It's not of God. They were saying that. Did you know that in ancient Israel? Isaiah chapter 30, God says, These people say, do not prophesy right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy unto us deceits. Deceits. Think of when flattery first started. Do you remember? The garden. Satan came along and flattered Eve. Hey, go ahead, man. God knows. The reason he told you not to eat this is God knows you're going to become like God. Really? Yeah. Do this. You'll become like God. Wow. I'm going to be like God. And she took of it. He that flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Flattery, says in Proverbs, works ruin. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. Verse 19. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Paul knew they were strong. Paul says, I'm really glad about that. I'm glad on your behalf. But he, he wanted to weed out anything that was false and keep people discerning. That's why he added, I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. The Phillips translation, I think, Nails this one right on the head. I want you to see, I want to see you as experts in good and not even beginners in evil. I think there's a healthy naivete concerning evil. Some people think, well, for me to really understand evil, I have to go there and really be immersed in it, really study all the evil. No, you don't. You know how you know what is evil? Get really good at knowing what is good. How do you find out a fake or counterfeit $20 bill? If you're a bank teller or have you ever been one, you know. They teach you to study the real thing so long, you become so familiar with what is accurate and right, authentic, that when somebody tries to pass off a false one, you haven't studied all the false ones, you've studied the true for so long, it's like, oh, this is fake. I know what the real one's like, and this ain't it. How do you know what is a false prophet? How do you know what is false, what is error? By studying the Word of God so much, so familiar with it, you go, red light, sitting good. I remember a, a guy when I, I was a new Christian, and uh, this guy was a um, very gifted musician, piano player. He was probably 13, 14 years of age. I mean, he was a child prodigy, and uh, we played in a band with him. 
And uh, he would listen to all of our testimonies, and especially some of the other guys, you know, I was on drugs and I shot 50 people and then God's, you know, the real radical testimonies. This is how bad I was before I was saved and now I'm saved. He never really had a testimony like that. He'd stand up and go, yeah, when I was like four years old, I accepted Christ and I've gone to church all my life. And he felt embarrassed by that. He thought that he should have some wild and woolly testimony 40 years ago, and he was only 13. I used to do this. And he thought he needed a testimony like that. And he even would say things like, you know, I think I need to go out and get involved in some of those things so that I understand what they're really like and how bad they are. And we thought, hello? Do you hear what you're saying? That's one of the problems I have against some people's testimonies. They spend so much time glorifying what the devil did in their lives. And, oh yeah, by the way, I got saved. Praise God. The glorious change is, in fact, I think the best testimony is someone who received Christ at a young age and was kept by the power of God through a life. That is a testimony. God has kept that power, that person, through peer pressure. That's true testimony. So, hey, become wise in what is good. Be simple. Be naive. Be a beginner when it comes to evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. I love it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. We can look forward to the day when our spiritual warfare is over. When you're never tempted. When you don't need discernment. When you don't need to listen to things with a filter and say, is that right? Is that wrong? I've got to compare that with the scripture. But until then, we need discernment. We have to be careful. There is spiritual warfare. One day, Satan will be crushed. Under our feet. What is he referring to? He's referring primarily to a scripture in Genesis chapter 3, a prediction made after Adam and Eve sinned about the Messiah, Jesus, who would come. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, that's the Messiah, and he, Messiah, shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent. In other words, inflict a mortal wound, crush you. What Paul is doing is looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ when Satan will be utterly destroyed. You say, well, Satan was defeated at the cross, right? Right. But you know what? It's hard for him to concede defeat. And so while Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, enabling anyone to come to Christ to be saved and delivered from the power of Satan, even now as well as in the future, he doesn't give up without a fight. He's been holding on for a long time. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, it's final. Temptation is gone. The battle's over. You might want to read sometime Revelation 19 if you're not familiar with it. John says, And I, I looked and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he makes war and he judges. And he grabs hold of Satan or of the Antichrist and the false prophet and throws them into the abyss. And then chapter 20, uh, Satan is bound for a thousand years. That's what this is referring to, the second coming of Christ. Something that you and I should look forward to, I think, especially at Christmas, because 1,850 times in the Bible the second coming is mentioned or, or referred to. 
The first coming is predicted 330 times, direct predictions as well as references and inferences, 330 times. For every one time the first coming is mentioned, the second coming is mentioned or alluded to eight times. Eight times. For every one time the atonement is mentioned, the second coming is mentioned twice. No less than 50 times are we told to get ready for it. Jesus personally referred to his coming 20 times. 22 times, I think, to be exact. And so this is something we look forward to. It's, 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 a, it's a verse that should make us go, Yeah! Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The God of peace will crush Satan. You say, well, he's a God of peace and he's going to crush? Yeah, that's how, he, that's how he keeps the peace. By crushing the one who makes war and destroys. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is the Christmas season. And this is the time when even the world will tolerate the baby Jesus in a manger. Because, think about it, a baby Jesus in a manger is very manageable. He's a little baby. Look how cute he is in those swaddling clothes. Hey, he's going to grow up and become king of kings and lord of lords and crush the devil under his feet. That's what he's going to do. Oh, I don't like that kind of Jesus. I like the little baby one. That's how the world thinks, you know. They'll, they'll tolerate cribs painted on their storefronts. Will they tolerate a picture of Jesus coming with a sword on a white horse? No. One person said it this way. The world is like, likes a complacent, reasonable religion, and so it is always ready to revere some pale Galilean image of Jesus, some meager, anemic Messiah, and to give him a moderate, rational homage. It's true, isn't it? But when he comes a second time, when Revelation 19 becomes a reality, that is the watershed event of all history. All evil is destroyed. All righteousness is vindicated. The saints get rewarded. It's a showdown, the ultimate showdown. Now Paul brings it to a conclusion, includes some greetings from his team. He has written greetings to the people in Rome by name. Now these are part of the people who are with him in Corinth from, from whence this book is written. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. Timothy was a constant traveling companion with Paul for about eight years. Five times in Paul's letters, Paul commends Timothy. And there's two letters written to Timothy, first and second Timothy, of course. That's the Timothy's speaking about. Paul said that Timothy was like a son to him in the faith, like a child who respected or served his father in the faith. And he commended Timothy to the church at Philippi, saying, For I have no one else who is like-minded who will naturally care for your estate except Timothy. It's amazing to think about. Of all the people Paul had around him, he said, You know, i got a lot of people around me in my circle, on my staff. There's really only one guy that has my heart. And the guy that has my heart is Timothy. Constant companion with him. Verse 22, I, now it doesn't say I, Paul, but I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. 
say, well, now, what does that mean? I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, I thought Paul wrote this epistle. It begins by saying, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, etc., to the church, the saints who are in Rome. Now it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Tertius was Paul's amanuensis, his secretary. Paul dictated, the guy wrote it down. That's all it is. What a privilege. Hey, Tertius, come here. Could you do me a favor? Yeah, I've got this thing in my mind. Call it to the Romans. And he wrote, got to hear all that and write it all down. So he was the personal secretary, the amanuensis to Paul the Apostle. And then Phoebe would be the person who took the letter from Corinth through Centria and then on to the church at Rome. Why did Paul have somebody else write it down? We don't exactly know why, but we know he did. Here's a couple of suggestions. Here's a couple of clues. To the Corinthians, he writes this toward the end of his letter. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. The salutation with my own hand. That is, the body of the letter was not written by Paul, but the end, the salutation, he writes with his own hand. Sort of like, in his love, and you sign your name. That's what Paul did at the end of that letter. To the Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, he says, Do you see what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand? Now, it wasn't that he wrote a long letter. The book of Galatians is a short letter. Do you see what large letters I am writing with my own hand? No doubt he was writing big, honking letters on the page. You know, like a little kid would do his ABCs. Probably because... He had poor eyesight. He had poor eyesight. We don't know why, but scholars have proposed this idea. When Paul was traveling through Iconium, made a lot of people mad, preached the gospel, left Iconium, went to Lystra and Derby. He goes into Lystra and Derby. There's a guy who's lame from his birth. Paul prays for him. The guy gets healed. Instantly healed, miraculous healing. It's a superstitious town, Lystra and Derby. And so they go, oh, the gods have come down to us. So they bring garlands out and bulls to sacrifice. The gods, these are the gods. And they called Paul Hermes and Barnabas they called Zeus. They said, these are the gods. They started sacrificing to him. Paul goes, wait a minute, time out. We're just people like you are. And they restrained them from doing it. Well, just at that time, when there was confusion, unbelieving Jews from Iconium came to Lystra and Derby and stirred up the crowd, and they stoned Paul in the very town where the man was healed. And it says, they drug him out of the city, supposing he was dead. There's a debate as to whether Paul was truly dead or he was not dead. Some say he truly was and God raised him. Others say... He's as good as dead. He's mostly dead. <laughs> and then he got up. You'd have to have seen that movie to even get that one. But what I love about Paul is Paul got up after his stoning, wiped himself off, went back into Lystra and Derby, and kept preaching the gospel. You'd say, Paul, cop a clue here. They don't like you, okay? But he went back and he preached the gospel. It is suspected that that stoning severely impaired his eyesight. 
And that that was what Paul was referring to when he said, 14 years ago I knew a man in Christ, and then he says, I'm the guy. And he called it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And scholars believe that it was the eyesight from the stoning that he received at Lystra and Derby that it was his ongoing thorn in the flesh that he put up with. And so when he wrote, he had to write with such large letters. Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. Quartus, a brother. Remember who Gaius was? He lived next to the synagogue um, in Corinth. If you remember 1 Corinthians, he was one of the two guys that Paul baptized. He writes to the Corinthians and he says, um, uh, um, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you should say that I have baptized in my own name. And then he goes, oh, and I baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I don't know if I baptized anybody else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Gaius is referred to as one of the few people that in Corinth Paul baptized. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. This is the benediction. This is the doxology. He's wrapping it all up. He said amen before and then he gets back into it. Now he's ending it. You can tell because he's doing this doxology of sorts, this praise unto the Lord. And he sort of, uh, and we'll go through it quickly because we're out of time, but he, he covers the main themes of Romans. He talks about the power of God. Now to him who is able. To de dunamen. He is able. He has dynamic power. Not only to save, that's how he starts, Romans 1.16. God is able to, has the power to save. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But he ends with the power to keep. He has the power to save you. He's got the power to keep you, to establish you. He speaks of the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's not saying, this is my gospel. That's why I wrote it. He's simply personalizing it. He's saying the gospel that I preach includes the keeping power of Jesus Christ. He saves and he keeps, he establishes. And he's got power to do it. Power to save, power to sanctify. And it says, uh, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. I'd like to develop this, but we're out of time for the book. We'll get into it when we talk about mysteries again. Several mysteries in the New Testament. The mystery he's speaking about can be none other than what is found in the book of Ephesians which he mentions over and over again, the mystery kept secret from the beginning of the world, but now is not a secret any longer. And that is, believing Gentiles are as much a part of God's kingdom and God's blessing as believing Jews. There's not just a chosen race called Jews, but God has extended his love and favor, and it's been his plan, we covered that at length in Romans, to the Gentile church, so that it's all one body, Jew, Gentile, male, female, Royalty free, we're all one in Christ. That's the mystery that was kept secret in the Old Testament, but now revealed in the New. And then finally, the evangelization of the world, verse 26. But now has been made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures, been made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. Who's the gospel for? What does it say? All nations. 
Mark that in your minds, if not in your Bibles. It is Christmas, and remember the angel comes to the shepherds in Bethlehem. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Not, hey, I got real good news. That's just for you guys in Bethlehem. Oh, and Jerusalem. Okay, and Israel. We'll, we'll close it off there. To all the world. Now, why do I bring this up and belabor it? Because people will come and say, you know, Christianity is fine for Western civilization. But don't you dare try to impose that on other cultures and other distinctions in the world. You have no right to go into their country and just plow down their traditions and preach Jesus. That's a Western religion. Think again. It came from the Middle East. It's an Eastern tradition. It's to be specific, an Oriental tradition that spread to the West. And the West houses it and has the money to propagate it, and well, we should. It's for all the world. Go therefore and make disciples, Jesus said, of all the nations. Luke 24, repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Simply put, it means you. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for me. The gospel is for Sudanese, people in Hawaii, people in the French Riviera, Germany, England, Scotland, Albuquerque, Los Angeles, Boston, everybody. That's Romans. We're done with it, except for verse 27. To God alone Wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. How does the book close? Giving glory to God, doesn't it? Don't ever forget that your life and my life has one purpose. To bring him pleasure. To bring him glory. The gospel, Christianity, receiving Christ is not about making me happy, but making me holy that I might make him happy, please him, glorify him. And you know what happens? When you live your life poured out to glorify God, you get really happy. But as long as you look for happiness as your primary pursuit, you'll never find it. You'll be so miserable. And we won't like being around you. But if you keep Jesus number one and pour your life out in service to him, irrespective of how you feel, it's for him. My life is for him. You will become, as the byproduct, very joyful. And you'll be a delight to be around because your life is lived for the right reason. And that sums up Romans, and that is the gospel.